Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, we have exclusive new information on the January 6th investigation. Special counsel Jack Smith has another key witness, and she's about to join us live. Plus, the FBI director coming face-to-face with some of his harshest critics during what turned out to be a tense hearing on Capitol Hill, blasting Republican claims of bias against conservatives as, quote, insane. But some Democrats didn't give him a pass either, and a lawmaker who was there will join us. Also, mending fences, a high-stakes sit-down between President Biden and President Zelensky ending on a high note tonight after tensions had been simmering about NATO membership. How were they able to smooth things over? A top White House official will tell us about it. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, we have CNN exclusive reporting. The special counsel's team that is investigating efforts to overturn the 2020 election has now interviewed Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Benson, of course, as you know her, is the highest ranking election official in that battleground state. She oversaw the election that Trump lost and faced death threats for it. We know that federal prosecutors have also spoken recently to former Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers. He broke that news with us last week but also Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Both of them are Republicans, I should note. Benson herself is a Democrat. And Secretary Benson joins us now. Secretary, thank you so much for being here. We know from our reporting this interview was in March. Were you subpoenaed? How did you end up speaking to investigators? Uh, we responded earlier to a subpoena and, uh, and then uh, responded to a request for a interview. We've been very upfront and transparent about all that we endured throughout the 2020 election cycle and uh, and, and have spoken with uh, anyone voluntarily who reaches out to us to ensure accountability for what occurred. And how long did this interview with, with Jack Smith's team last? Several hours. Uh, it was back in March. And, uh, and it really underscored, I think, the depth through which uh, the federal prosecutors are looking into everything and the seriousness with which they're taking what occurred and the quest for justice to ensure it doesn't happen again. Was Jack Smith there for this interview or did you speak to him at all directly? I don't want to get too much into the details of the who and the what because uh, I don't want to compromise the investigation itself. Uh, but I do think, you know, a lot of what uh, was discussed uh, and very openly revealed during the January 6th Congressional Committee hearings uh, provides a good roadmap for a lot of what any federal prosecutor should be looking at. Have you gone to the grand jury or do you think you'll you'll have to take that step as well here? I'm willing to speak with anyone, uh, you know, on the record about what we endured and, and seek accountability. So, you know, if uh, and when we are requested, we'll be a part of any proceedings that require 
my testimony. And, and again, it's, it's tricky because these are ongoing investigations and none of us want to compromise the very seriousness with which this effort is proceeding. But I think it's important for the American public to know that what occurred in 2020 uh, was really uh, de detrimental to who we are as Americans. And it's important that there be justice uh, and accountability for what occurred. And I have confidence that our federal prosecutors are looking carefully at the law uh, without bias or uh, favor and ensuring that the law uh, is enforced and that there's accountability where violations occurred. Well, we spoke to Rusty Bowers last week, who also was subpoenaed and spoke to Jack Smith's team. He said that he had turned over a lot of documents through his attorney. Did you turn over any evidence, any you know, documents, voicemails, text messages, anything of that nature? Yes. And it was mentioned we received a subpoena earlier. So we've been consistently ensuring that any evidence we have of any wrongdoing, of any illegal effort to overturn the legitimate results of a presidential election, any evidence we have is swiftly and effectively turned over to all uh, relevant authorities, including at the federal level. And we have been in, in, in near constant communication with officials uh, as we receive evidence because it is important that all of these investigations proceed, not just in accordance with the law, but rooted in solid evidence of wrongdoing. And so it's our responsibility to ensure if we have that evidence that it is submitted. Did you get a sense, you talked about how you believe this underscores, you know, kind of the importance of this investigation. Did you get a sense from the invest, the questions that investigators had about the scope of this investigation? It, was there a certain area that they seemed the most focused on? I think, again, you can look back to the content of a lot of what the congressional January 6th committee uh, discussed. Uh, particularly when it comes to election workers, the impact of the misinformation uh, on our lives and the threats that emerged from that uh, from various sources. I mean, that was certainly something that was discussed during the January 6th committee hearings from many uh, election officials. And so uh, to the extent that any of those threats or the misinformation that led to those threats crossed the line, I think, you know, there's uh, there needs to be accountability there. Uh, and, you know, myself and the election officials who have um, at request or simply because we have a story to tell have been speaking to any authorities. I think it's really a reflection of our desire just to ensure that the law is followed uh, and that where there is evidence of wrongdoing, there is justice that is served. What do you believe? You, you sat down with them for several hours. What do you believe is the most important testimony that you gave them? Uh, that's a great question. I think it's a connection between you know what we witnessed, uh, which I've talked openly about for several years now, a, a real coordinated uh, strategic effort to try to block the counting of votes in our state, the certification of an election in our state, and then spread lies that then transformed into threats against lives of election officials who were simply doing our job. And there's a lot of evidence that has already been revealed that it was presented to the January 6th committees. And it's already out there in the public uh, square about all of this. And I think it's important that that evidence be taken seriously. And I have confidence that it is being taken seriously. And you know, we are uh, willing to go over and over again with, um, with the um, relevant authorities, everything we endured and experienced and witnessed to ensure, again, where there's evidence of a pernicious and strategic effort to overturn the will of voters, that there is justice that is served so it can't happen again. 
And, of course, the fake elector scheme was prominent in Michigan, as you know. I mean, Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani testified before a Michigan House committee in late 2020, and it was urging state lawmakers, you know, to pick their own electors to replace those who were legally pledged to President Biden, as you and I both know. And we know the fake elector scheme has been a focus. Did they ask you about the fake electors? I can't get into the details, uh, but certainly we know that many states had, including Michigan, including Arizona, including New Mexico and others, had evidence of a false slate of electors that um, was, you know, was outside of the confines of the law. And uh, and so evidence of that, I would I would uh, you know observe could be relevant to any investigation. And also it's important, again, to, to hearken back to that day in early December of 2020, when Rudy Giuliani did show up and try to you know, present false evidence to a state legislative hearing about election wrongdoing with, with no evidence of actual wrongdoing, but just cast aspersion on those results. That led not just to questions about the certification, but people showing up outside my home in the dark of night uh, armed and protesting the election results, which, again, not just myself, but other election officials witnessed real threats of violence as a result of those acts. And so by casting, I think, a broad net of all the ways in which there were attempts to not just overturn an election, but cause fear and threaten the, those professional election workers whose job it is to protect the votes and voice of every people, all of that, I think, is something that should be looked at and certainly speak to the what we witnessed here in Michigan and the experience that I personally had. I was thinking about something you said last year where you said that you had heard from someone who was familiar with the conversation that had happened in the Oval Office that during a White House meeting, uh, you were told Trump said you should be tried for treason and potentially executed. Did Jack Smith ask you directly about Trump? I don't want to get into the specifics of the ongoing investigation, but as I talked in length to the January 6th committee and a lot of that testimony has been made public, uh, it's very clear that we dealt with a lot of challenges and a lot of threats uh, as a result of just baseless uh, allegations about uh, our elections with an effort to overturn the results and, and cause fear, not just in election officials, but voters themselves when it comes to exercising our fundamental rights. So all of that, I think, needs to be looked at. And I have confidence that the relevant authorities are looking at everything that needs to be considered in seeking full accountability and culpability for all the events that transpired following the 2020 election. I understand what you're saying about not getting into the specifics. I mean, we're still waiting to see who actually is charged, if anyone, in this investigation. Was your sense, though, without getting into those specifics, that they were trying to learn new information from you or that they already had a pretty good grasp of what happened and they were essentially just pulling everything together and kind of tying up loose ends? Did they seem to be closing in on the end of this investigation to you? I, I really can't. I don't know. I think, I mean, again, this, this, this conversation happened several months ago. I think what, what is clear to me is that there, uh, the, seriousness, the seriousness with which federal investigators are taking what occurred and the importance of, I think, for everyone involved of proceeding in a way that is not political, but is strictly based on facts and the law. And, and what's already out there in the public record really does paint a very comprehensive picture in no small part due to the incredible work of the January 6th Congressional Committee hearings 
of a lot of what happened uh, in, in the, the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. So there's already a lot out there. Uh, I imagine perhaps more could be discovered, but uh, but certainly the bulk of what we've experienced has in many ways already been in the public eye through the January 6th committee hearings. And it's important, I think, that any federal investigators take the evidence that came out through those committee hearings seriously. And I believe that the Justice Department is doing that. Yeah, it's definitely notable to hear you hearken back to the the January 6th committee congressional hearings on this so much because it kind of paints a picture of where these other investigations, which have you know more force behind their subpoena power, could be going. Secretary Jocelyn Benson, I mean, you joined us on this breaking news after my colleague Zach Cohen broke that you had spoken with them. Thank you for joining us at the last minute to talk about your interview with Jack Smith's team. We appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for having me. And joining me now to talk about that and the implications of it, Karen Friedman Agnifilo, a former chief assistant district attorney at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. We've talked a lot about this January 6th investigation. What stood out to you about what the secretary said there about what she said was an hours long or interview that she had with Jack Smith's team back in March? Noticeably didn't say whether or not Jack Smith himself was there. I think it confirms what many people have been speculating based on other tidbits of information that we are learning from people who are coming forward and and telling us, just like the Secretary of State did tonight about that conversation, which is that Jack Smith and his team are focusing on several areas with respect to January 6th, one of them being the fake elector scheme in various states, right? We know he also spoke with Brad Raffensperger, which, Mm -hmm. you know, is the Secretary of State of Georgia and now Michigan. And those are both states where there were false sets of electors or fake electors. And the Secretary of State is the one who certifies these. And so they're the witnesses that you would call uh, and the ones that that you would have to um, have as as evidence in the grand jury. Now, one thing to note, note, though, is that federal grand juries, you can put hearsay, which means a live witness doesn't have to go in. So I don't know that we can glean exactly anything from the fact that she hasn't testified in the grand jury yet. It could mean that they are not going to charge that. It could mean that they haven't gotten to it yet. Or it could mean that they're going to take a summary of the of the interview from March and just put that in through a witness like an FBI agent. So right. at least we know the investigation is including looking into that. Because she said she spoke with investigator. She said she's willing to go before the grand jury, but it sounds like she hasn't. She also said she turned over evidence. You know, we asked her, she didn't specify what, she was careful not to get into the details. But if you're the secretary of state for Michigan, I mean, and you're interviewing her, what kind of evidence are you asking for? Well, were there any recordings? Were there any uh, notes that you took contemporaneous to any phone calls that were made? Are there any other witnesses to some of the statements that were made? Uh, is there any video? You know, she talked about threats and things that happened. You know, I would just want to know what corroboration there is, but I'd also like to see the documentary evidence regarding the fake elector scheme, right? They signed their names, you know, that you, you need to gather the real electors and the fake, you know, the, the documents, right? Because there are people there who falsified documents and, and who the witnesses are for all of that. So there's a lot that they would want to gather, but it's everything from video, audio, emails, text messages, and official government documents. Okay. Karen Agnifilo, thank you for breaking all of that down with us, that breaking news. 
Also tonight, the FBI director was hit with a tsunami of questions and allegations on Capitol Hill today. His first time there since Trump was indicted on federal charges. He was forced to defend his agency from attacks on everything from the former president to Hunter Biden. We'll show you highlights next. FBI Director Christopher Wray was bombarded with questions from Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee today, appearing for the first time in front of that panel since Donald Trump was indicted on federal charges and since Republicans took control of the House. It was combative, to say the least. People trusted the FBI more when J. Edgar Hoover was running the place than when you are. And the reason is because you don't give straight answers. Director Ray was on defense for hours, talking about January 6th, social media, allegations of political bias, and yes, of course, Hunter Biden. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does you won't not, the has qu- no oh, interest on. in protecting You won't protecting answer the question about whether or not that's a shakedown, and everybody knows why you won't answer it. The American people deserve to know how the FISA court is being abused and how it's being abused against the former president and against them. The idea that I'm biased against conservatives uh, seems somewhat insane to me, uh, given my own personal background. What is his own personal background? You may not have been able to tell if you watched that hearing today. But a reminder, Ray is a registered Republican. He was appointed by Republican President Donald Trump, and he was confirmed by 92 senators. This hearing put some Democrats in the position of defending Director Ray and the FBI, but others had their own frustrations with him. In my view, actually, I'm concerned that the FBI has been reluctant to do its job when it comes to the former president. His tape-recorded conversation with the Secretary of State in Georgia, in which he badgered the Secretary to, quote, find 11,780 votes that don't exist. Uh, While that was the subject of investigation by the local district attorney in Fulton County, did not appear to be the subject of investigation for more than a year by the Justice Department. Uh, To me, that is inexplicable. On the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago, Ray insisted it was not a raid, but a lawfully executed search warrant. He said he wasn't going to wade into ongoing investigations, but he did make this note. I don't want to be commenting on the pending case, but I will say that there are specific rules about where to store classified information and that those need to be stored in a SCIF, a secure compartmentalized information facility. And uh, in my experience, Ballrooms, bathrooms, and bedrooms are not skiffs. I'm joined now by a Democrat who was at today's hearing, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington. Thank you for joining us here on The Source, Congresswoman. You know, for the most part, Democrats were largely defending Director Ray as he was being largely attacked by Republicans. But you grilled him about the FBI's practice of buying personal information of American citizens, data that could include their location, their health information, even potentially what they are looking at online, obviously data that the FBI can't legally collect on its own without a warrant, but can buy on the open market. For our viewers who missed your line of questioning, I want to show them a moment of it. The ODNI declassified a report revealing that the FBI and other agencies do purchase significant amounts of commercially available information about Americans from data brokers. Can you tell me how the FBI uses that data? 
respectfully, this is a topic that gets very involved to explain. Uh, and so I, what I would prefer to do is have our subject matter experts come back up and brief you and they can answer your questions in detail about it. Congresswoman, were his answers today sufficient for you? Caitlin, they were not. And um, throughout my questioning, I kept saying to him, this is our job is to have you testify in public before the American people and before Congress about what the FBI is doing. And we do have significant concerns. It's not just I. ODNI, for those who don't know, is the office of uh, the director of national intelligence. That is where the report came from that said that the FBI is purchasing large amounts of data from these data brokers um, and that information contains everything from your your location information, your medical information. It could contain uh, information about all kinds of private uh, things that I think the American people uh, understand they do not want the FBI to have. And so I have an amendment uh, on this topic in the NDAA. It's a bipartisan amendment. And this whole area of the FBI utilizing um, information of Americans without a warrant. Um, these are all warrantless searches that are done. They are backdoor searches. The information is used in ways that we don't know. We have a lot of information about this, and the FBI has not been forthcoming with its answers. And so I did say at the end of my questioning of Director Ray that if he wants the reauthorization of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which I happen to think is an important piece of legislation, but it contains some very important issues around privacy, we are going to need answers to this, and we're going to need some significant reforms about how the FBI uses Americans' data and how we protect the privacy of Americans across this country. And if you don't get that, it sounds like you would consider blocking the reauthorization. Is that right? Well, I think I think we need to get some really significant reforms if we're going to reauthorize FISA, because I don't think that we can sacrifice the liberty and the privacy of Americans. And that is a bipartisan concern. Um, it's not often that the chairman, <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. Republican chairman Jordan, compliments me on my line of questioning. But he did in part because we have been working for many years, actually, on uh, significant reforms that need to be done within the privacy context. Yeah, I noticed that at the end, Congressman Jim Jordan, the chair, for those who weren't <laughs> watching, complimented you. It's not something you see every day. Uh, but do you share the concerns that your Democratic colleagues on the panel have that the FBI slow-walked in investigations into Trump's role on January 6th? They slow-walked efforts to dig into his refusal to hand over classified documents? I absolutely do. And I will say that it was a very bizarre hearing, another bizarre day on Capitol Hill, because, uh, you know, I didn't think that I would ever be in the situation of listening to Republicans lambaste, the majority of Republicans, I should say, lambaste the director of the FBI and even some of them talking about defunding the FBI, the nation's largest law enforcement agency. Um, you know, Democrats have had concerns about the partisan nature of the FBI for some time. Um, certainly when you look at the investigation of Donald Trump and you look at the fact that Director Ray was appointed by Donald Trump, uh, it becomes even more bizarre to hear what Republicans were saying today. And you heard him say that in one of the clips that you played. 
I do have concerns in general about how the FBI conducts many of its operations. That does not mean that I think that we should defund the FBI or that the FBI isn't playing a very important role. And I think that's where the Republicans, uh, the extremism of the Republicans really comes across. And Director Ray, I thought, did a good job of talking about all the things that the FBI does from, you know, working on fentanyl seizures to mm -hmm. uh, working to prevent uh, foreign uh, hacking of our uh, of our various pieces of, uh, of you know, uh, networks here in the United States. And what would happen if we were to do what these extremist Republicans are saying to do all because, Caitlin, they want to defend Donald Trump at any cost. And if that means defunding the FBI so that the FBI can't pursue legitimate investigations of the former president, then uh, then they're going to do that, obviously. Congresswoman, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Caitlin. A highly anticipated meeting today after a very tense 24 hours overseas. But we did see smiles. And according to both sides, President Biden and President Zelensky are on good terms and agreement on the final day after that NATO summit. A White House spokesman is going to take us behind the scenes next. President Biden pledging that U.S. support for Ukraine, quote, will not waver after his face-to-face -face talks with Ukrainian President Zelensky at the NATO summit. Tensions had been high heading into this meeting after President Zelensky publicly criticized the lack of a real timeline for Ukraine's entry into the NATO alliance, calling it, quote, absurd at one point. But when the two leaders were in front of the cameras today, both agreed that Ukraine will be able to join the military alliance once the war ends and certain conditions are met. We want to be on the same page with everybody, with all, all the understanding. And for today, what we, what, we, what we hear and understand that we'll have this invitation when security measures will allow. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby joins me now. Kirby, thanks so much for being here. You know, the U.S. says that Ukraine does have a future in the NATO alliance, but no one has really articulated how or when, why not offer them a clear timeline? Well, I think right now the focus has got to be, Caitlin, on helping him win this uh, this fight on the ground, win this counteroffensive. That's really what's right in front of us. And what you saw today was terrific unity out of the alliance on, on two things. One, making it clear to President Zelensky that there is a path forward. They don't have to use the, the map, the uh, original plan for entry uh, to uh, the alliance, but they still have to work on reforms. And there'll be a process to help them do that. And number two, and this is not unimportant, there was unanimity that we're going to have to continue to work on security commitments long term for Ukraine for when this war ends, whenever that is, however that is. They're still going to have a long border with Russia and they're going to have needs. Uh, and President Biden made it very clear to President Zelensky that in the United States and across the G7, they would have security commitments from those nations to make sure that they could continue to defend themselves as they work towards that path to membership. President Zelensky said, uh, and I'm quoting him now, I believe that we will be in NATO as soon as the security situation is stabilized, in simple terms, the moment the war is over. Does President Biden agree that the moment the war is over, Ukraine will be admitted to NATO? The president certainly believes that uh, that while the war is ongoing, NATO membership is not in the best interest, not only of 
uh, NATO allies, but in the interest of Ukraine. Uh, but he also believes that there are certain reforms that have to be accomplished. And it's not like Ukraine hasn't been working on them. They have. But when it comes to anti-corruption, democratic institutions, rule of law, judiciary, those kinds of things, uh, there's still reforms and, and that, uh, that need to be accomplished that Ukraine's going to need help with. Uh, and they're going to find, again, in the United States, a friend to do that. Okay, so it sounds like it may not be immediate. One decision the U.S. has made recently is to give cluster bombs to Ukraine. There is now, though, a bipartisan effort that has been mounting on Capitol Hill that is led by a Democratic congresswoman, Sarah Jacobs, to ban, essentially to block the U.S. from being able to provide those to them. Uh, I mean, how concerned is the White House about this? Because I know you've gotten letters from Democratic senators as well urging the administration yeah. not to send these cluster munitions to Ukraine, what do you say to them? Well, we look, we certainly understand the concerns. Quite frankly, President Biden had concerns about providing cluster munitions. This was not, as he said on this very network, not an easy decision for him to make. It took him some time to come around to it. But the bottom line is, that the Ukrainians really need it for the fight that they're in right now. I mean, we can't leave them defenseless. And if we don't provide these cluster munitions as a bridge until we can get normal production rates of artillery, unitary, normal artillery shells up to speed, uh, they're going to run out. So it's really important. They're in a gunfight. They've got to have these cluster munitions. But it is just a bridging solution. It's not meant to be a permanent uh, add to their inventory. Yeah, well, obviously that raises questions about the U.S.'s own inventory of ammunition. But John, on another subject, North Korea has fired a long range ballistic missile off its east coast. Is there still zero communication between this administration and North Korea? Well, look, we have uh, channels to be able to communicate uh, with Pyongyang. We don't have, as you know, Caitlin, we don't have an embassy there. We don't have direct diplomatic relations, but there are ways to pass uh, communications back and forth. We have consistently made it clear to Kim Jong-un and to the regime in Pyongyang that we are willing to sit down without preconditions to talk about the denuclearization of the peninsula and to talk about ridding the peninsula and the region uh, of this arsenal that uh, Kim Jong-un continues to try to improve and perfect because it's dangerous not only to the peninsula, to our uh, allies in South Korea, but actually to our allies in Japan and elsewhere throughout the region. And yet uh, they have failed to take us up uh, on that offer. But we're continuing to make it. Even today, we're making it. Uh, in the meantime, since they're not responding positively to it, uh, the president is also taking additional actions to make sure that we can defend our security alliances and, and meet our commitments in the region. We're bolstering uh, military exercises and training events. We're working harder to improve trilateral cooperation with the Japanese and the South Koreans. Uh, and we're going to continue to improve our uh, ability to gather intelligence and information. But John, wait, just to follow up on that, because when I was covering the White House not that long ago, I, there was what I was told was that there was no communication between the U.S. and North Korea, that they had not responded to anything. Is that still accurate or are you saying that they've responded just not positively? No, no, no. They're, they have not responded to our offers. And what I'm okay. saying is there are existing channels to communicate with them, uh, but they have not taken us up on this offer. They've not responded uh, in any way whatsoever, okay. which we have to take as a negative response. Just wanted to clarify that. Also, uh, our Pentagon producer, Haley Britsky, took this photo today. It is of, it's at the Pentagon. These are the Joint Chiefs. You can see Chairman Milley at the top, but you see that empty space right there on the bottom right. That is for the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Obviously, there is no permanent leader at the Marine Corps now after uh, the other leader was forced to uh, essentially relinquish his spot this week and his successor has not been confirmed from the Senate. 
because of the hold in place from Senator Tuberville. He was on the show with me Monday, and he yeah. said this about outreach from the White House. We need leadership in the White House. If I'd have been the president, I'd already called me to the White House and said, Coach, what are you doing? This is why we need to get this done. How do we work it out? We got to come to some compromise. But Caitlin, there's got to be conversation. Nobody has even talked to me in five months. Does President Biden have any plans to call Senator Tuberville? Do you think a call would resolve this? I know of no such call on the schedule, Caitlin. And frankly, uh, he doesn't need to get a call from the White House uh, to know that it's the wrong thing to hold up more than 250 officers from either achieving a higher rank or a, a new assignments. I mean, my goodness, that, that picture you showed just a minute ago, let me tell you, by the end of September, there's going to be three more empty photo frames on that board on the wall in the Pentagon because officers are going to be timed out of their jobs. They're going to have to retire and there won't be a successor confirmed by the Senate to take their place. And that has real impact on the military readiness around the world, across all the services. It also has a significant impact on military families, because now you're going to have families that can't move, can't find new homes, can't uh, get schools for their kids in time for the for the fall uh, semester coming up. I mean, this is going to have a real impact on military readiness. Yeah. Uh, I would also say, before I finish that, uh, that, that without these leaders in their jobs, um, what kind of a message does that send to the rest of the world? At a time, we were just talking about the NATO summit and the, the critical nature of the, the security environment in Europe and elsewhere around the world in the Indo-Pacific. And now we're going to talk about, you know, uh, military leaders that aren't going to be in their assignments at a very dangerous time. It's, yeah. this, is, this is foolish. And he's, he's playing politics with the military. We asked him those questions about how it affects military families. John Kirby, thank you for your time tonight. Another state legislature has just passed a strict abortion ban, setting the limit at just six weeks. Of course, that's before many women even know that they are pregnant. Abortion rights groups are now suing to block it. The state, the story, that's next. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is going to sign a six-week abortion ban into law on Friday after the Republican-controlled state legislature there passed a bill just before midnight last night during a special session. The bill contains exceptions if the mother's life is in danger and for rape or incest if it is reported within a certain period of time to law enforcement or medical professional. Dr. Francesca Turner is an OBGYN in Des Moines, and she joins me now tonight. Thank you, Dr. Turner, for being here. You've said that the bill is a bit ambiguous, that you're unsure at what point of a medical emergency a doctor would be able to, to intervene. As a medical professional, what, what part of this is the most unclear to you? Well, the medical exception uh, for the life of the mother is clinically meaningless. So that's not how we practice and it doesn't really make any clinical sense. And what I mean by that is like how we practice, how we take care of people. And so uh, people come in and they have a problem and we try to fix that. Um, so when they come in, let's say they're bleeding uh, and it's an inevitable miscarriage. Um, and normally I would take them to the operating room uh, to stop their bleeding. Um, but sometimes they come in and they're still very stable and they haven't lost that much blood yet. Um, I'd still take them to the operating room because they're going to continue to bleed. Um, I don't want to wait till they're unstable. I don't want to wait until I have to use a massive transfusion protocol. Um, if I have to wait till they get sick, 
they're more likely to go in the ICU, they're more likely to have complications or even die. The anesthesiologist, they don't want to take an unstable patient to the OR if I can prevent it. And so at what exact point do I get to save someone's life? I'm, it's very unclear. So you're saying, you know, because often that is something that you hear from state lawmakers who vote for these abortion bans is that it does have these these exceptions. But you're saying when it says there is an exception for the life of the mother, that that's you in your view, is that's not really an exception. Well, I think if someone comes in and I know what the subsequent happenings are going to be, I will take care of it right now. But if they're clinically very stable, or their vital signs are stable, or they haven't lost enough blood, does that count as save as her life in danger? Well, maybe right at this moment it's not, but it's going to be. Yeah. And do I have to wait? And it's sometimes it's not going to not even going to be my decision. The hospital. Dr. Turner, are you still there? We lost Dr. Turner, but we do appreciate her joining us tonight with her insight in this. She is an OBGYN in Des Moines. Obviously, this new bill that is going to be signed into law by Governor Reynolds on Friday will be critical in that state and will certainly affect her work and others. Thanks so much to Dr. Turner for joining us. Ahead is the kingmaker of conservative media, Rupert Murdoch, souring on Republican presidential candidate Governor Ron DeSantis. We'll tell you what the new reporting is next. A new round of campaign ads airing in key early primary states, all taking aim at former President Donald Trump. He's got so many distractions, the constant fighting, something every day. And I'm not sure he can focus on moving the country forward. The election is really important because we're going in the wrong direction. I mean, we definitely need somebody that can freaking win. I think you'd probably lose that bet if you voted for Trump. A new super PAC called Win It Back is spending about $3.5 million on those ads that you saw there in Iowa and South Carolina over the next two weeks. The Political Action Committee has ties to Club for Growth, which, for those who don't know, is an influential conservative group that has had a long and complicated and tortured relationship to the former president. Joining me now is my panel. Scott, when you look at those ads, obviously they're not advocating for any other candidate, but they certainly are advocating against Donald Trump. Yeah, so if you're uh, Ron DeSantis, you like it. If you're Tim Scott, uh, you might like that as well. My question about these ads and any other efforts to to go after Trump on television is, is there a TV ad that can change someone's opinion about Donald Trump? I mean, even that sentiment right there, I mean, a lot of Republicans believe that. And some of them are not going to vote for him, but a lot of them are going to end up voting for him. Would seeing a TV ad really change the dynamic for Trump? I'm dubious. I'm not saying it couldn't be true, but I wonder. What about a TV interview? Because Governor Ron DeSantis, you know, a few months ago, if he went on Fox News, it was quite friendly to him. But he no longer seems to be able to rely on them for that because obviously he's a candidate now. That changes it. But now when he has been going on, he's been getting pressed uh, multiple times on his poll numbers and the fact that he's not doing better in these polls. Here's an example of what he's been questioned about lately. So I'm curious in the, the, the analysis of Ron DeSantis of why not yet is connecting. Well, I think, did you just see the news today about uh, the record fundraising haul we've had? But I'm wondering what's going on with your campaign. What happened? <laughs> oh, Maria, these are narratives. The media does not want me to be the nominee. You know, obviously he's not doing better in the polls. That's why he's getting asked about polls. But this comes as the New York Times is reporting that 
Uh, they believe, based on that, Rupert Murdoch is reassessing just how formidable of a candidate DeSantis is going to be. Well, coming out of the 2022 election, I think a lot of Republicans prematurely hitched their cart to Ron DeSantis, thinking because he was one of the more successful Republicans in the midterms, that he would be able to announce and shoot up and soar. And he hasn't. He he did have a good fundraising quarter for announcing in the race, but he hasn't been able to close polling numbers. I think that's because he is trying literally to be uh, Donald Trump 2.0 and play victim. The media doesn't like me. That could have worked, and it did work in 2016, only you already still have Donald Trump still playing that role, and so he's not being a good understudy. But also, the media doesn't like me. I mean, he's, that's the friendliest media he's probably going, well, maybe not the friendliest, but some of it. Well, it, it is true. The media hates Ron DeSantis, and the, the mainstream media, I don't mean Fox News necessarily, but, I mean, the dude is well-covered and well-criticized out there. There was a period of time, you mentioned the November midterm, it wasn't just that he won in Florida, it was that a lot of Republicans did in the moment say, well, maybe Trump cost us, yeah. you know, the election here and we didn't do as well because of Trump. But he didn't announce until May. So he had this sort of vacuum mm-hmm. between November and May where everybody was waiting for DeSantis. He took forever to get into the race. And if this doesn't work out for him, I wonder if we may end up looking back and saying, boy, you missed your window there because there was a period where people were maybe looking for the next lily pad and it wasn't available. And then he finally gets in. But look what happened in between then and May, you know, That's Trump right. gets indicted. Everybody rallies around Trump. Trump actually starts to run a campaign. He's got great operatives working for him. You wonder, was that period He's that defining he defining Ron DeSantis? But yeah. Ron DeSantis also did a lot of things in his home state as governor. He signed a six-week abortion ban. He started to go after Disney in a more aggressive way. He really stuck his claim on the right of uh, Trump. And believe it or not, maybe people who even support Donald Trump don't want right of Donald Trump. And I think that that's kind of why Ron DeSantis has stalled out. Scott Jennings, Ashley Allison, thank you both. A hot tub may sound fun, but it is actually incredibly dangerous when that is the temperature in the ocean. We'll tell you more next. If you've been spending any time off the coast of Florida these days, the waters there feel more like a hot tub than a cool dip. A sudden marine heat wave is even surprising scientists. Sea surface temperatures are registering at the 90-degree mark between the southern tip of the state and the Florida Keys. The hot water there could kill coral reefs in the area. That's why it's of such concern. There's also fear that it may provide fuel for a devastating hurricane season. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, as you have every night this week. Sit in primetime with Laura Coates starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.